Hi, everyone. It's Jillian Youngblood with Civic Genius, and I'm here today with Sam Daly-Harris, who is one of the great social entrepreneurs, I would say, of the past few decades. He founded the anti-poverty group Results in 1980. He co-founded the Microcredit Summit campaign in 1995 alongside Nobel Peace Prize laureate Muhammad Yunus, and he co-founded Civic Courage, which he'll talk more about today, in 2012. He's also the author of Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government, which former President Jimmy Carter called a roadmap for global involvement in planning a better future. Sam coached the environmental organization Citizens Climate Lobby, who we've worked with before on some previous events, um, in its first seven years and has received a whole bunch of awards that you can read about in our show notes. So Sam, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So I talk to people all the time who truly care about what's going on in the world. They genuinely want to make a difference, but they don't have much confidence that their actions are going to amount to anything. And in a lot of cases, you know, that belief is decently well-founded. If you've ever worked on an issue campaign that lost or you've had an unsatisfying meeting with your elected official, you might walk away feeling like the the, uh, system is set up to exclude your voice. And so the reason that I'm so excited to talk with you is that you've demonstrated over the course of your career that citizen action can be incredibly powerful and consequential. And I know I've taken some important lessons from your work and from your book, and I think our listeners will too. Um, So let me just start off by asking you how you got involved in helping people engage with their democracy. Yeah, actually, it's a kind of an unusual start. I'm going to tell a story about how I got involved, but I want to mention this story, uh, this um, system of this storytelling is from Marshall Gans, a professor at Harvard who worked for a decade in the 70s with Cesar Chavez, and it's called The Story of Self, and oversimplified what happened in your life And what decisions did you make that got you to this commitment or to this moment? So that's, in a sense, a structure of the story. And I'll I'll just tell mine uh, right now. I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in music. And I played percussion instruments in the Miami Philharmonic Orchestra for 12 years and taught high school music. So standard background. Exactly. (laughs) And then 42 years ago, I founded the anti-poverty lobby results. And a lot of times I'm asked music, poverty lobby, what, what's the connection? And when I look back in my life, there's several experiences that start pointing me in a different direction. And I'm going to tell a shortened version of this story. I graduated from high school in 64 and from college in 68. And at the time of high school graduation, I learned that a high school fraternity brother of mine, a year younger, had died the day before graduation Mm -hmm. in a tractor trailer accident. And four years later, around college graduation, I learned that Robert Kennedy was assassinated right in and around those days. And both of these deaths got me to asking the questions of purpose. Why am I here? What am I here to do? What's my purpose? No answers, but I'm asking these questions. Nine years later, now I'm up to 1977, 
I'm always a little slow. Uh, I go to a presentation on ending world hunger put on by the Hunger Project. And I go to this thing thinking, well, hunger's inevitable. What do I know? I'm a musician still. Uh, I mean, it's inevitable because there are no solutions, I think. Because if there were solutions, somebody would have done something by now. But I go to this thing, and it's obvious right away. There's no mystery around growing food or clean water or basic health. I'm not hopeless about the perceived lack of solutions. I'm hopeless about human nature. People will just never get around to doing the things that can be done. But there's one human nature I have some control over, my own. And my question, why am I here? What am I here to do? So I get involved in a big way. This next last part, this is the last part. This gets to the de democracy piece. This gets to the civic genius piece. Before I go to the first classroom, I'm going to speak to 7,000, I didn't know that at the beginning, high school students, classroom by classroom. And before I went into the first classroom, I read some statements from the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, Food and Nutrition Study, and other expert studies calling for the political will to end hunger. So I asked 7,000 high school students, what's the name of your member of Congress? I don't want to know if you wrote him. I don't want to know if you met him. Just the name. I don't know if you even know this story, but you want to guess out of 7,000, the number that could tell me the name? Only oh, of their member of Congress. This would it's be not zero, is it? <laughs> it's what? No, it's not it's, zero. It's, okay. Two hundred fewer than three percent could answer correctly. Six thousand eight hundred, just over ninety-seven percent, could not tell me the name of their member of Congress. And results grew out of this gap between the calls for the political will to end hunger on the one hand and the lack of basic information on who represented us in Washington on the other. So that was my route in from music uh, to uh, civic action and the like. Yeah, it's such an interesting story. And it's really, um, I think it's really inspirational because you don't necessarily, um, you know, come from a, there's some view that there's a traditional background for who does this kind of work. And I think you're one great example of that not necessarily being true. Like the levers of government should be available to everyone. And um, we can all learn how to, how to pull those levers um, to make change if we, um, you know, are committed to learning how to do it and, and putting in the work. Um, so I love hearing about that. Um, you, um, you've spoken a lot about the distinction between transactional advocacy and transformational advocacy. Um, and this is an idea that comes from Hari Han, who's a professor at Johns Hopkins, um, who we love and who I'd, I'd recommend her work to everyone. Um, can you tell us about that distinction between transactional and transformational advocacy? I will. And I'm going to jump back to something you said earlier and then tell you, you said something about people want to get involved, but they're not sure they have the confidence to do it or well, that gets right at home with this distinction. She would say something like, well, transactional advocacy is more like sign the petition, transaction complete. Transformational advocacy is where volunteers are trained, encouraged, and succeed at doing things 
they never thought they could do. And as a result, see themselves in a new light, see themselves as community leaders. And so it really behooves you to find an organization that's committed to um, this deeper form of advocacy, this transformational advocacy, rather than, you know, what can feel kind of um, unsatisfying. I mean, I'm not saying don't, don't sign any more petitions. I'm just saying that if that's all we do, it can be a little hollow in the end. And uh, we won't have, I think, the breakthroughs that we all want to have. Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, what do you say to someone who there's uh, kind of, so we run, you know, a deliberative democracy program and we reach out to people in a lot of different communities and say, you know, we've got a six hour program. You should come do the hard work of sitting down with people who disagree with you and hash out these issues and find solutions. And, you know, the people who come, I think really enjoy it and appreciate it. And I obviously think it's a great program. And then there's also a school of thought that says, you know, The reality is that people are very busy and they have jobs and kids and aging parents and illnesses, and um, they just kind of want the government to work. And it's unreasonable to expect that people are going to be able to put in all of this time and want to put in all of this time um, to to make change in how the government operates. What would you say to that critique? Well, let me say a couple of things. I'm going to start with a quote. I'm a big quote guy. This is a quote from Apollo astronaut Rusty Schweikert, who said, we aren't passengers on spaceship Earth. We're the crew. We aren't residents on this planet. We're citizens. The difference in both cases is responsibility. And so um, I think that's important to remember. And I think You know, other than, yes, I mean, sometimes there are very special circumstances where there's a very ill relative and they need us completely. But but I think in the end, I think among all the things in our lives and all the things we have and all the things we do, we want our lives to matter. And um, it's not going to happen sitting on the couch. And and so let me say one other thing about the six hour session and well, how do we do this? One of the things I talk about a bunch is I coach staff of groups, groups that work on democracy issues or climate change or poverty or peace issues. And I always say that pretty much the main reason that the deeper forms of advocacy that we're talking about don't work is the fear of staff of making a big ask of volunteers. And so my my asking you to do a six hour session is a big ask. And it would be normal for me to be afraid to ask you to participate. Um, But, you know, it's if we ask that uh, and get over that and we deliver something powerful we're all the better for it. Right. Yeah, I certainly agree. <laughs> yeah, and I think right, it's it's um you do have to deliver something. I think um you know, people are are justified in wanting to use their time well um and in wanting to see results from those things. Um 
So how do you go? I wanted to go back to something that you touched on earlier, which is civic confidence. And I talk to people all the time who say, I don't call my elected officials because I don't really think I know enough to get into a conversation or, yeah, I'd like to go to a meeting, but I really don't want to get grilled on this. Like I know what I think, but I'm sure they know more than I do. And I used to work on Capitol Hill. I've worked with a lot of elected officials and um, don't mean to imply that they're not smart people who know a lot of things. Um, But I'm always like, no, oh my God, you should call. Like you should have that meeting. You should not assume that you don't know enough. Um, How do you think about, um, or how do you go about building someone's civic confidence? Let me say a couple of things. One is I'm working with a a group and I may discuss them in a moment, but, uh, and the new bill got introduced and they had a monthly conference call and their guest speaker a few days ago was representative Paul Tonko uh, of New York. And the bill, I'm, I'm forgetting the numbers, like 40, 70, 4734 or something. <laughs> you don't remember the number? Which, of yeah. <laughs> which means there are 4,000 bills that have been introduced. So the, the staff can't know about all of those bills. And you're coming in having done some homework can be a, a gift really to them uh, uh, in that kind of way. But building confidence... Um, it gets back to that um, uh, that um, concept of transformational advocacy. In my book, there's a drawing on one of the pages, and there's a little circle that's labeled your comfort zone. And next to the little circle is a massive circle, which is labeled where the magic happens. And the trick is, to encourage and train and coach volunteers to have a sense that they know what they're talking about so that they'll get out of their comfort zone and over to where the magic happens. I'm going to tell you a a quick story of one of the groups I'm newly coaching. uh, It's not been a year yet. It's called the Foundation for Climate Restoration, and their focus is not as much to only get to net zero carbon emissions but they want to pull carbon out of the atmosphere that's already up there, not just put no more up in it, but pull it out. Anyway, uh, there was one of the volunteers and the chapter started in October of 2021. So it's, you know, maybe six months old or or so. Uh, They met with four elected officials, two state representatives and two senators. And he said, uh, he said, Before those meetings, I'd never called an elected official. I'd never written an elected official. And I'd never met with an elected official. Now, there's some confidence building. Now, what happened? He had training about those four meetings before he did the four meetings. Uh, But then he went on to say, we met with the chair of the Committee on Energy and Environment. uh, And... He knew everything about climate change, but he didn't know much of anything about um, uh, carbon dioxide removal. And the chair of the committee asked us, the chapter, if we would brief him and his staff, committee staff, on, they call it uh, climate restoration and carbon dioxide removal. And he said, yeah, of course we will. But afterward, he said, it was a little mind blowing to think that we're going to brief the chair of the committee and his staff. And we're just a few months old as a chapter. 
Now that's a story of confidence building. Now it started with he was cares about the issue, but then he got into a structure of support that trained him up and not alone with some others to then go out and get these meetings and plan for these meetings and have these meetings. And the, the confidence comes back to the transformational advocacy when you do something you never thought you could do. And it could be a small thing. I wrote my first letter to an elected official ever. For some people, that's a breakthrough. A letter. Hit send to an elected official. It doesn't have to be, you know, I met with President Biden in the White House. No, it could be a letter to my rep kind of thing. It's first step. But it's doing those things that we don't think we can do and then seeing we can do them that builds confidence. And uh, that's often missing. Yeah. You know, I love that story. And we talk about this all the time because there is a perception and I understand why there's a there are many examples, obviously, of every level of government not being particularly responsive to what constituents think. So it's not an unreasonable conclusion. But I also, you know, having worked for an elected official and knowing lots of people who work for elected officials at the federal and the state and the city level, like a lot of them are there for the right reasons. And like you said, they really want to know if you bring a new idea that rings bells for them that they're not familiar with, that sounds like it could factor into a solution, they really want to hear about it. Um, I worked a lot in healthcare when I worked in DC and I took those meetings really seriously. Like I met with at least a dozen um, you know, constituents and experts on different things a week and I took serious notes and I fed them back to my boss. And um, yeah, I think it's great for people to know that those are really important meetings to have and shouldn't assume that your voice doesn't matter there. That's, um, that's really interesting. Um, So, you know, kind of on that topic, something that I think you probably hear a lot that I hear a lot is, you know, my member of Congress is really good on this issue. I don't need to call and, you know, tell them... (laughs) tell them to do the thing they're already going to do. Or my member of Congress is terrible on this issue. It is not even worth having the meeting. What would you say to to someone who- I got a good one. My job is done. Or I got a terrible one. There's no way. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to tell a story with this one. But one of the things I do is I lead little trainings on a thing called the champion scale. How to move your member of Congress who might be opposed up to neutral- or neutral up to a supporter, a co-sponsor of a bill. No, no, you're not done. No, no. How to move a supporter up to being an advocate, how to move an advocate up to being a leader, maybe a lead sponsor or a leader of a caucus or a leader of a sign-on letter, and eventually to a champion. So let me tell this story. Uh, I was working with, uh, very inspiring, I was working with this group uh, of uh, American Promise, and the chapter in New Jersey had a meeting with the deputy chief of staff for representative Andy Kim. He was the congressman who was down on his hands and knees after the insurrection, cleaning up the Capitol uh, uh, Rotunda area kind of thing. And um, they met with him and they knew he was already a co-sponsor of the bill. They didn't say we're done. They, They thanked the staffer And they asked if the congressman would do a town hall meeting on the bill that he's already a supporter of, kind of do an advocate 
kind of action. And they said, we'll get back to you. And they got back to him and said, here's what we're going to do. You guys get 15 minutes with the congressman alone, and then he'll do a, a, a hour town hall meeting on the legislation. Wow. Which he did. And the, and the 15 minutes, this is last year, before the um, town hall meeting, they thanked him for what he was doing in the town hall meeting. And they asked if he would sign an op-ed for Constitution Day that they would work to get published. And he said, yes. So all of a sudden, this supporter, which you could say, well, we can go take a nap. No, they're organizing a town hall meeting. They're making the request first. They're drafting an op-ed for the newspaper for this supporter to do these advocate actions. So that's an example of a group that has a member of Congress who already supports the measure, but they're looking for ways to have them step up to the next level, and he was perfectly willing to do so. So it's an ex it's an exciting um, uh, uh, possibility and way at looking at advocacy, not as a one and done. They signed the bill; we can stay silent for the next year because, well, they're a supporter. No, no, we really want to move people to advocate, leader, and eventually champion. Yeah. That's yeah. such a great story. Do you have, um, can you think of anything on the flip side where you've got, where you can say, oh, my member of Congress or my state senator, whoever it is, is not going to come around on this? Can you, have you seen yeah. any success uh, well, stories? I'm going to read an excerpt from Reclaiming Our Democracy from 35 years ago. The story I just told was from last year. The first story was from this year. So it, it kind of goes over. Before I tell this story, I want to tell about an, what I do when I'm coaching groups on working with opposed. A, a uh, I have the groups write down three questions. Uh, question, questions. Question number one, I know you don't support this bill. What would it take to change your mind? Question number two, can you say more about that? Question number three, why do you think that is? Which is just a listening exercise. Uh, um, well, actually, I'm going to switch up my story and I'm going to go to another one about this. Um, there was this fella, uh, his name is uh, Jay Butera. He was a, I'll call him a full-time volunteer activist. He was working with Citizens Climate Lobby. He was going from where he lived in Pennsylvania virtually every week to Washington, D.C., walking the halls of Congress. This is years ago. He decided that he wanted to start their first chapter in South Florida, where the seas are rising. And uh, he also wanted to start a climate solutions caucus. And he had a Democrat who would lead, and he was working to get a lead Republican for this Noah's Ark. You could only come in if, if a Democrat was accompanied by a Republican kind of thing. And he was meeting with this Republican member of Congress who said, it was kind of like, what would it take to change your mind? Or what would it take for you to come on board? And, he, and the congressperson said, uh, well, if you could get all the chambers of commerce on board, so he went to the Coral Gables, Miami Beach, North Miami, North Miami Beach, West Miami, 
South Miami Chambers of Commerce and got them to sign on to this idea. And he comes back to the member of Congress and he tells him, well, I got all these endorsements. Here they are. And the congressman says, well, if you could get the mayors on board. And he did. He went to the mayor of Coral Gables, Miami Beach, Miami, South Miami, etc. They all came on board. And this Climate Solutions Caucus with a lead Democrat and a lead Republican was launched. Uh, and that's a, a, a little more recent than my 35-year-old example of, well, what would it take? Well, if you get these guys, okay. Well, wait, we, if you get these guys, and he's given instructions, the member of Congress, and this uh, super volunteer is, is following them. That's, That's what you amazing. Want. Yeah. Did the member was... ultimately come on? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so cool. And even if the member hadn't come on, you would have already organized the Chambers of Commerce and the mayors. Exactly. <laughs> like it would have, exactly. would have had no choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so fantastic. Um. I w this is going to feel like a little bit of an interjection uh, or kind of a side sidebar, like we're having a little PSA yes. or commercial. A lot of the language that we use for this kind of stuff um, sounds kind of lefty. So we, we use words like activist. You mentioned Marshall Gans, who's a you know kind of legendary figure on the left. Can you talk to conservatives who feel alienated by the way this stuff gets framed? When you, you know, you hear about advocacy, like it's just got a sort of revolutionary tone to it. And um, I think that it keeps conservatives out of positive civic action sometimes. Well, the bottom line is there are groups in the democracy space, in the climate space, et cetera, who are very intentional about training their volunteers to use language that doesn't turn conservatives off to uh, interact in ways that doesn't concern, to turn uh, conservatives off. Um, motivational interviewing is a technique. I, I'm not skilled in it myself, but that I know these groups bring to their volunteer networks, um, engaging them with um, braver angels uh, and the, the kind of left, right, talking to each other, kind of. So they're very intentional about, mm, we are not very good at uh, speaking a language that a conservative can hear. Let's get trained up on it. Not like they don't want to talk to the left. They just want to be able to talk to both sides uh, powerfully. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, I hear from conservatives a lot who say there are places where I'd like to get involved, but it always feels like someone is trying to convert me and not necessarily engage me as a stakeholder. Um, well, if I could just mention Citizens Climate Lobby, we're talking in in June of 2022, a, a month or two ago, they had their conservative conference where they had four or five Republican members of Congress speak at their uh, conference in DC uh, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So they're very uh, focused on finding a breakthrough really, because um, I mean, it's not, it's not about being right. It's kind of having a breakthrough and a resolution and a solution to wh yeah. whatever these problems are. Yeah.
So uh, there's a talk you give that's entitled, Are Shouting and Silence the Only Two Options? Bringing Bipartisanship and Transformation to Political Activism. And, you know, we run this program that I mentioned earlier called It's Your America, where we lead people through a process of finding consensus across political lines. And a lot of the people who are drawn to that initiative say they're really sick of this screaming silence binary. Um, So that title really resonates with me. And at the same time, I know a lot of people um, who think it's a both and, that you can be deliberative and work in a bipartisan way and still go out and do some shouting. Like shouting can be really powerful and it can be a part of achieving something. So tell me how you think about that. Well, the way I think about it is, the groups that I'm thinking of that are deliberative, let's call it deliberative and kind of when there's a, a, a protest or whatever, they'll be out there with their tables or their clipboard or their materials. Because often, not, you know, not always I'm thinking climate at the moment, but often the big rally and the protest is every 12 months or every nine months or whatever. So what are we going to do in between? So using those gatherings of people who care to bring more people in and uh, engage them for the longer term rather than the short. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that, I'm curious if you see um, a tension between working in a bipartisan or a nonpartisan way and or I think that people sometimes frame these as two different things, that you can do the nonpartisan work or you can do the work of whatever your issue is, if it's social justice or like there's a tension sometimes there between how much time do we want to put into this? Right. Well, I think the bottom line is an organization needs to decide, you know, what is your issue that you really want to enact and that you care about? And what's your route to getting to enactment or whatever the the way is. And if you can do it without bipartisanship and you want to go that route, go for it. If you can't see a way to get it done without a little bit of both sides, doesn't have to be everybody, but a little bit of both sides, then uh, find your way forward that way. So an organization needs to determine kind of how who they are and how they want to be and how they want their volunteers to be in the world. And uh, they have to own it and believe it and, and run with it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I meant to, uh, to comment on something you said earlier when you were talking about the questions that you would ask um, an elected official who didn't agree with you. And I just wanted to emphasize the first one, which is what would it take to get you there. And I love the framing of that. And I use that all the time because it's so different than saying, well, why do you oppose this? Or why don't you agree? And then you're opening up the conversation to get a list of all the reasons that this is bad. Yeah, I'm thinking as the elected official, well, what would it take to change my mind? Because I'm dug in. Well, actually, you know, then they're actually inquiring in their own mind uh, if there is a way they could see what's their barrier that you could help them with. Yeah, right. It forces you both to think critically and proactively um, and kind of actionably. So I really like that. Um, Your book 
is titled Reclaiming Our Democracy. I have it sitting right here. Reclaiming Our Democracy, Healing the Break Between People and Government, which sounds like a book that someone might write today, but actually next year will be its 30th anniversary. So on one hand, that feels sort of depressing, like it's been 30 years and Americans have still not reclaimed our government. On the other hand, it's a reminder that these lessons that you write about are evergreen and that democracy is a verb and that you never stop being engaged. Yep. Is there anything, um, you know, anything in particular that you think is really salient and relevant today that you'd like to read from the book? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, uh, it's all salient anyway, because it's, although the stories, some of them are quite old, uh, they're all, uh, uh, uh <laughs> really useful. I'm going to tell this. I'm going to read this thing that's maybe a little strange, but I love it. And I'm going to set it up and read a little excerpts of it. We so love a little the, strange. The year is 1985. And this is a group in Atlanta, Georgia, and results, the anti-poverty lobby. And their congressperson was one of not many, a handful who voted against famine aid for Ethiopia. And the person who's speaking in this story says, you know, when you're watching a really terrible baseball team and you want to sit with bags over your head because you're so ashamed to be, be rooting for this baseball team of yours. Well, that's how we felt about our member of Congress who had voted against famine aid for starving people in Ethiopia. But one of the staff members suggested a poem, uh, sorry, a prayer that another volunteer had used a couple of years earlier with their member of Congress in Houston. And they would read the prayer at their meetings, which were three times a month. I'm going to just read this prayer, and I want you to just get a sense of it. Their congressman's name was Pat Swindoll. Um, he passed away recently, but he's, he, we were friends on Facebook because he would read me telling about this story and uh, some article or something. Thank you, God, for Pat Swindoll. We know he's a good man who wants to do right in the world. We know he struggles with the same problems we do, closing our hearts to those who don't agree with us. There are no thoughts or feelings that he's had that we haven't had, and vice versa. We pray for all of us to learn compassion for people in our country and far away, for rich and poor. We pray that Pat and we will be less frightened of each other. We pray our focus will be more to love and appreciate him and less to change him. Help us remember that sharing love with the world is the highest contribution you can make and will lead to children being fed and the planet surviving. Forgive our righteousness and anger. Open our hearts and minds to find the next expression of love for Pat that he can receive. End of prayer. And he would... <laughs> Well, wait, wait. He would say that they, they would read this. He would talk about this on a conference call, what they did. He said, we would read the prayer and then we'd go, yeah, right. And then he'd say, oh, the next meeting, we would read the thing again. We'd go, fat chance. Then they'd, we'd, eventually it sunk in and they would meet with their congressperson. The, the, uh, the sessions were called chat with Pat sessions, which they remain, renamed Spat with Pat because so many people came up with a bone to pick. And, and they would come with a smile and a handshake and some information about something else he could do to help fight poverty. And at one point, they're getting ready for a, a meeting with him. And a bill was being introduced 
on micro, this is two years later, on microenterprise microcredit legislation. And I'm going to read a little ex. Um, the, uh, in the spring of 87, results launched its microenterprise legislation with a new bill. We decided it was time for an office visit with Pat, and four of us took off time from work to go see him. It was late afternoon, and we must have been a sight sitting in his waiting room. They would drag a TV and a video player, a VCR with them, to show him a Grameen Bank video. Earlier in the day, feeling confident, I told Sarah that after Pat agreed to co-sponsor the bill, I'd ask him if we could write an op-ed piece in support of the to appear under his name. I don't know, Stephen. I think you'd be pushing it. But I figured once he's committed to the bill, what did, what did I have to lose? So they pile in, the congressman comes in, he sits on his desk with his like chin under his knees and he watches this video and they ask him if he'll be a co-sponsor of this bill. This is the guy who voted against famine aid. He, he says, I'd be delighted to be a co-sponsor. Sensing we were on a roll, I began to ask about an op-ed, but before the words were even formed in my mouth, the congressman spoke. You know, I think it's important on an issue like this that we try to build public support in the media. I have a column that appears in the local paper, and I'm thinking maybe you could write a piece about this bill that could run in my column. Do you think you could do something like that? I glanced over to Sarah with a smile so wide it hurt. Pat, I'd be more than happy to do it. I was now ghostwriting for a man who two years earlier voted against famine aid for Ethiopia. We're probably the only lobbying group in Georgia that could get Pat Swindoll and liberal Congressman John Lewis to co-sponsor the same legislation. That experience changed me. I now see that everyone has the potential to do the right thing if given the opportunity. It's refreshing to see people as possibilities rather than as obstacles. I love so this that. Is, this goes back to your old question about going from opposed to neutral to, in this case, supporter and an advocacy ad action, an op-ed in his column about the thing he co-sponsored. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's a kick. So first of all, that prayer is the most Southern thing I have ever heard. That is like a long, bless your heart. Being from Georgia, I recognize that tone. Okay, great. And I like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then- I have to tell you this. I spoke at um, uh, St. Benedict's, uh, St. Joe's in Minnesota. And it was a book group before the lecture. And a nun who had retired after 37 years- at the, as librarian said, yeah, I like, I like what you're saying. I hadn't read that yet. I like what you're saying, but my Congresswoman is Michelle Bachman and I don't know what to, where to start. And I whipped out the book and I read the prayer and I put Michelle Bachman's name in place of the other Congressperson. And it was just another one of those moments where you could yeah. see a glimpse of a way through. Not a way through, maybe, but a glimpse. A glimpse. You can insert any through. name there and <laughs> commit exactly. yourself to the process. Um, I love that. And then I love the second part of the story, which is to ask for a little bit more. It's like, if you don't ask, they can't say yes. And there's really yeah. not there's really not a downside to asking. Yeah. 
Yep. Yep. Um, that is a great story. Um, so, you know, what would you say, what would you say to listeners who have not really been involved before, who want to get involved in some kind of advocacy work? So obviously I will make a plug here to sign up for the Civic Genius newsletter and check out our genius guides, which are easy to read, plain language explainers on what all of the people and bodies and boards and agencies in our government do. And those all link to these handy guides on how you can push those people and bodies and agencies to do the things that you think they should be doing. Um, Sam, what else should people be doing? Well, the bottom line is you should look for an organization that's committed to building your confidence. And I'm going to give you a couple of quick indicators of what what it looks like to me. For me, it's a group that builds chapters or circles or groups or whatever you want to call them, that they don't want people to act alone. They want them to have four other people or 12 other people or 20 other people in their town or whatever it is. Uh, so they, they form chapters. The second thing is, I'll call it, they gather the family. They have a monthly, well, pre-COVID where people would get together, but a monthly conference call with guest speakers and Q&A and get a grassroots victory and maybe a mini training uh, so that you don't, another way, you don't feel so alone. And if people go to civiccourage.org, uh, you could find some groups that do that on various issues. And I could help link you uh, if you, you can find that Civic Courage sign-up sheet at civiccourage.org, which has a number of these groups that I've worked with that form chapters so you're not working alone that have a monthly conference call with guest speakers and the like. Uh, so you, it's kind of like deepening your education and your grounding on whatever the focus or issue is of that organization. And what would you say, what do you think are some of the most foundational skills that someone who hasn't been involved in advocacy before should Learn. Well, you know, I'm, I'm going to call it most foundational skills that an organization should be able to train you in mm -hmm. and not to go get this skill somewhere. I don't know where. No, no. Find organizations that are giving these skills. It's writing a letter, not a pre-written one, but a, your own personal letter to your member of Congress. It's uh, if you're the person in the chapter who's the liaison, make, calling the key aid if this is federal in Washington, the one who is the one who links directly on this issue to the member of Congress, meeting face-to-face -face with your member of Congress. And I mean, these days it might be on Zoom for now. Uh, and, and then having a letter to the editor written and published to get the word out there. Uh, uh, let me tell you, uh, uh, getting an op-ed published, and let me tell you a quick story about this. I was talking to uh, an organizer for very big group, everyone on this call and this podcast would know the group. Uh, and the head of organizing said to me, we can't let our volunteers write letters to the editor or op-eds because they'll get it wrong and misrepresent the organization. Uh. Well, citizen, 
Citizens Climate Lobby volunteers have over 4,000 letters, op-eds, and editorials published each year. So one group saying they'll get it wrong and misrepresent the organization. The other group saying, what do we have to do to help them get it right and give that to them? And so you want to find organizations that are asking, well, what do we have to do to help them get it right? And, you know, and you'll be served, you'll be trained, and hopefully you won't be alone also in in what you're doing. Yeah. And I think you want to be part of something where you feel like you're using your real voice and you're not just grabbing someone's talking points and saying, well, I guess this is what's important. And part of something that's growing, not just because you came on, but it's in the DNA of the organization is to um, grow and get out there and bring people in and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, just transitioning back to something you mentioned earlier. So you mentioned Braver Angels, which is one of one of a couple of groups that is doing great kind of, you know, red and blue, Republican and Democrat cross-partisan conversations. And I'm just curious if you've um, done anything like that, if you've had any experience with those kinds of conversations and, um, you know, do you think they're important? Do you think that they're impactful? Well, I mean, anything to open up conversation and uh, decision-making is critical. Um, yeah, I think it's, I've not been deeply involved in those specific kind of things, but I have been deeply involved in encouraging volunteers to find ways to not give up on this member of Congress or that elected official and instead um, open a door rather than close it. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of thing. So that's really critical in my world. It's not for everyone. It's not everybody's cup of tea. But in my world, uh, yeah, it's really important. That's great. Um, and then one last thing I wanted to ask you is we've talked a lot about um, federal advocacy. And, um, you know, just wanted to throw out there that people don't necessarily, first of all, don't necessarily need to travel to Washington, D.C. If that's not an easy trip for you, your member of Congress has got a district office pretty close to where you live, where you can always go visit. I know a lot of uh, members of Congress and staff are doing Zoom meetings these days. So you can always get a, maybe not face-to-face, but you can get a screen-to-screen. And also would encourage people to take all of these lessons and um, meet with their state and local electeds too, um, who are going to be in your community where often things move more quickly than they do in Washington. so just wanted to encourage people to to think about um, their power broadly. It doesn't have to all be at the federal level. And you've probably done some, I imagine you've done some state level, at least advocacy as well in yes, your career. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's critical to let all of those vehicles uh, in. Um... That's great. Um, is there anything else uh, that you want to add that we haven't talked about? I'm going to close, if it's okay, with a quote from Alex Steffen. Uh, he's a climate activist and futurist. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm read this twice. He Please. said, optimism is a political act. Those who benefit from the status quo are perfectly happy with a large population of people who think nothing's going to get any better. In fact, these days, cynicism is obedience. I love that. In fact, these days, Cynicism is obedience. What's really radical is being willing to look right at the magnitude and difficulty of the problems we face and still insist 
that we can solve those problems. And if I could once more, optimism is a political act. Those who benefit from the status quo are perfectly happy with a large population of people who think nothing's going to get any better. In fact, these days, cynicism is obedience. What's really radical is being willing to look right at the magnitude and difficulty of the problems we face and still insist that we can solve those problems. And so that's easier to do if you can find a group to be with to still insist that we can solve those problems and not doing it on your own. That is fantastic. I think it's, uh, I cannot think of a better way to end. Um, Sam Daly-Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure. My, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.